Let us continue our series in Luke's Gospel by turning to the 11th chapter of Luke's Gospel. We will read the first four verses this morning. Now, let me point out to you that Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer is briefer than Matthew's version. Uh, The setting is different, and the Lord's Prayer uh, in Matthew, it is part of the Sermon on the Mount. Here in Luke's Gospel, it is an answer to one disciple, perhaps even a disciple who had been absent from the Sermon on the Mount, that the disciples be taught to pray even as John taught his disciples. And so we see that our Lord used the same teaching in different places and times, and that often is the case. However, I do find it necessary to read from the authorized version of this text as we look at this Lord's Prayer in Luke's Gospel for the next few weeks. The ESV The NIV and most modern translations remove 11 words on the basis of two manuscripts. Now that's a manuscript issue. It is a judgment call on the part of the translators. And I think that the majority text type that was behind Tyndale and the Geneva Bible and the authorized version that is the King James is correct in its longer version that is similar to Matthew's of the Lord's Prayer. Now, if any of you have any questions about this, I'll be happy to explain more. Now is not the time to go into those details, but I ask that you take your copy of God's Word and stand. Let us pray, and then we will read the Scriptures. Our Father, Thy Word is truth, and we ask that as we turn to it that our minds and hearts may be focused upon the Christ of this text. And we pray that you will give to us the powerful working of your Holy Spirit, without which all of our worship and preaching and hearing is in vain. We are completely and totally dependent upon you. And so work within our hearts to conform us as believers to the image of your Son, Jesus. Continue to convert us. And we pray that those who are outside of Christ who do not know you will come to know you. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The word of the Lord, beginning with Luke 11, verse 1. And it came to pass that as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. And he said unto them, When ye pray, say, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven, so in earth. Give us day by day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, will you also turn in your Bibles to the eighth chapter of the book of Romans, because this will be fundamental to our exposition this morning, and we will read verses 14 through 18, Romans chapter 8. 14 through 18. Again, the word of the Lord, Romans 8, beginning with verse 14. 
For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. In prayer, we commune with our God. And when we come into the presence of the God who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, and holy in all that he is and in all of his ways, our hearts are exposed. And as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, sometimes all we can see is our sin. And so there is much in our hearts and in the world and in our immediate circumstances that would tend to break down confidence in prayer. How can I go into the presence of such a holy God and pray? How that I know, do I know that he will receive me? All I can see is, as I contrast myself with his majesty, the sinfulness of my heart or the difficulty of my circumstances. And sometimes I lack confidence in prayer, and I'm sure you do as well. The Lord knows that we are weak, and he begins his instruction to his disciples about prayer by encouraging confidence. And how does he do this? He does this by beginning to tell us that we are to pray our Father when we come into the presence of our God. So that's the first point. God is our Father, and he tells us that to encourage our prayer life before him. Now, when the Lord Jesus taught his disciples to pray, Our Father, I'm sure that this was utterly amazing to them. And the reason that it would have been utterly amazing is because the Jews did not pray this way. They certainly prayed about God as king. They exalted him in their language, but they did not address him as father. Jesus routinely addressed God as father. And of course, that is because he is the unique eternal son of God, the second person of the Trinity. There is this eternal father-son relationship. There are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and in glory. But when the disciples heard him pray with that tender language, Abba, because behind the Greek pater would have been the Aramaic Abba, which was the language of a child to his father. Yes, reverent, but also very tender and intimate. When the disciples heard him then say, now when you pray, you also pray Abba. You also pray our Father. It would have been an amazing thing to them. Because Jesus is saying, I have a unique relationship with my Father. I have come to be your Redeemer. And because of this, you now are privileged to call God by the same intimate name with which I call him our Father, my Father, the Almighty, the Sovereign, the Holy, the Infinite, Eternal, Unchangeable God, you may now call Father. But it doesn't stop here, because in the progress of redemptive history, after the cross and the resurrection and the ascension of our Savior, 
the Apostle Paul, by divine inspiration, in the passage in Romans 8 that we read together, gives to us another depth dimension that helps us to understand what it means that when we pray, we call God our Father. Let's understand what this means by remembering that Paul draws four conclusions for for us this morning from our adoption as sons and daughters of the living God. In other words, because you are now adopted through the work of Jesus Christ into the family of God, you are his sons and daughters, and you may now have a deeper understanding of what it means that when you pray, you call God our Father. From that passage in Romans 8, the Apostle Paul says to us, that there are four conclusions that you should draw about your relationship with your father. That there is now freedom from slavish fear, Romans 8.15. For we have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but we have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Slavish fear characterizes the life of the unbeliever. There is the fear of death. There is the fear of life. There is the fear of the judgment to come. The law comes and it says, do and live, and the unbeliever cannot obey the law of God that only condemns. But then the gospel message comes and it is believed, and you say, oh, now I am justified by grace through faith. I am adopted into the family of God, and I am no longer to be controlled by a spirit of fear and of slavery. Well, because of that, you may now come into the presence of God and say, Our Father, and you can know that as adopted sons and daughters of God, you have been delivered from that spirit of slavish fear. But also, Paul says, when you pray, Our Father, you can know that there is a new intimacy that you have because of the cross of Jesus. Romans 8.15, we have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. In other words, you are now intimate with your heavenly Father. You may be intimate with the Creator, with the infinite, eternal, unchangeable God of the Bible. With Him, you are now intimate. Some of you perhaps have read Old Hallowsby's book on prayer. I haven't in years, but there's something I remember from his life. He was, of course, a Lutheran theologian in one of the Scandinavian countries. And during his study time during the day, his study was off limits to his children. He must have time alone with the Lord. He must have time in prayer. He must have time to prepare his sermons and to write his books. And so he couldn't do that with his children around. One day he is in his study and the door begins to open. It opens a little crack. It opens a little more. It opens a little more. And he sees his little boy. And his little boy says, Daddy, I just want to be near you. Let me tell you, God, your father's door is never shut. You are intimate with him because of the spirit of adoption that indwells you. He wants you to come into his presence in prayer and to fellowship with him because through the Holy Spirit's work within your life, there is a new intimacy with God. But Paul says there's something else you should know about your sonship, your adoption, and that God is your father, and that is that you have assurance of faith. Romans 8.16, the Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And so he assures us of the truths that are found at the end of Romans 8, that nothing will separate us from the love of God. The witness of the Spirit through the Word puts my name on the promise and ends all controversy. 
And so freedom from slavish fear, intimacy, assurance of faith should, should inform your prayer life very deeply. But also, the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8, we have a sure inheritance. We have the inheritance given to us as sons of our Father. Romans 8, 17, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Romans 8, 23, and not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to whip the redemption of our body. And similarly, 1 Peter tells us that we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. And so there is this great inheritance that has been given to you because God is your father and you are his children that should inform you when you pray. So what is Paul saying to us that will help to deepen our understanding of Jesus' teaching that when we pray, we say our father? Paul is saying that knowing God as Father encourages an attitude of security and of joy and of assurance. And when you take upon your lips our Father from this Lord's Prayer, this and more is what you mean. Now some of you are new here. I've used this illustration so many times because it's very meaningful to me. And some of you have never heard it. Others, I hope, will benefit When I was a young man in First Presbyterian Church in Macon, Georgia, sitting in the congregation one Sunday morning, Dr. James M. Baird, the pastor, baptized a little baby. When that baby was placed in his arms for the baptism from his father to Dr. Baird, the child began to cry, and I really mean I've never heard a child cry like that at a baptism. The child cried as if the child had been pinched. I have never heard that before ever since. It filled the room. It was a terrible thing. <laughs> it, was, it was a real cry. It sounded like the child was in anguish during the entire baptism. Dr. Baird concluded the baptism. No one could hear much of what he said, of course. And then he took the baby and placed the baby back into his father's arms. Silence. Immediate silence. You could have heard a pin drop. And Dr. Baird came into the pulpit, and he looked over the congregation, and he said, Would that we were so secure in our Heavenly Father's arms. By which you know what he meant. You are so secure in your Heavenly Father's arms. Would that each of us experientially knew within the depths of our souls that we were so secure in our Heavenly Father's arms. Now that's what it means to pray our Father. That's what it means that the spirit of slavish fear has been removed, that you have a new intimacy, assurance of faith, and a sure inheritance, and that you are secure in Christ. That's what it means when you pray our Father. Now, I ask you to ask yourself personally, what would my prayers be like if I came to my heavenly Father, conscious of the fact that now I have a freedom from slavish fear, I don't have to fear to come into his presence. He wants me to come, that I have a new intimacy, that I can be assured of my faith, that I am secure in my inheritance, and he will bring me all the way to my heavenly home. Do you think that it might deepen your prayer life? Do you think that it might cause you to come more often in prayer? 
Do you think that it might make your prayer life more of a joy? Do you think that it might, might entice you to get upon your knees alone more often and to come intimately into the presence of your Father in heaven? Do you think so? I ask you. Do you think so? If you understood these things experientially, would this transform your life of prayer? Would it make prayer such a joy that sometimes you might even lose track of time in praising your God and worshiping Him and coming with your petitions and simply being in His presence, just as old Hallowsby's little boy just wanted to be near his father? I was reading the other day of a man named Johnston. He was one of the great covenanters. During the 1630s and 40s, our Presbyterian forefathers were killed and maimed and tormented and tortured and imprisoned and fined because of their adherence to the Reformed faith in Scotland. It's quite a story if you don't know it, and it's something that is indeed very remarkable. This one man whose name was Johnston was known for being a man of prayer. Not that he tried to make it known, but it simply was known because this is who he was. And he would typically spend at least three hours a day in prayer. But on this particular occasion, Mr. Johnston was on his knees in prayer at six in the morning, and he was fellowshipping with his God, and he was surprised to hear the town bell toll eight o'clock. Well, you say, well, that's quite a long time of prayer, from six to eight in the morning. No, no, you don't understand. It tolled 8 p.m., He had spent his entire day with his God in prayer and in fellowship, and it had been such a delight to him that he was surprised when he heard the 8 o'clock p.m. bell toll in the town. Now, I'm not suggesting that your prayer life has to look like someone else's prayer life. I am saying this. That was a man who knew that God was his father and who knew something of intimacy with him and how to spend time with him. And all of us need that, do we not? Notice also, though, that we are to pray our Father, which presupposes love for our brethren, fellowship with God's people, that we have a Father, and we are a part of God's family. That as Herman Hoeksema said, your prayer must needs die on your lips if you should appear in the sanctuary of God with hatred against your brother or even against one brother in your heart. Our Father implies that we should be praying together, that we should be praying for one another, that we should together be dependent upon our God in prayer. Oh, we need to seek God in prayer. The church needs to seek God in prayer. The church today is in desperate need of the spirit of prayer. We are in need of a powerful effusion of the Holy Spirit of God. Spurgeon rightly said, the strength of a church may pretty accurately be gauged by her prayerfulness. Let me return to those days in Scotland. The year is 1630. The man is John Livingston. He has come to a communion season. He's a minister of the gospel, but he's not been asked to preach. He has no no expectation to preach. Some of the great preachers of Scotland are preaching. The well-known preachers of Scotland are preaching, and he has come to bask in their preaching and to enjoy fellowship with the congregation. But from the start, they knew something strange was happening in this communion season. 
And they decided to extend the communion season one more day to Monday morning. And they asked Livingston to preach. Now, he was a very capable man, but he was a very retiring man, a very meek man. And he was overwhelmed to think that he would preach to such a vast crowd, that he would preach with such dignified ministers and such well-known older men being in the, in the congregation. And so he thought, as he was out in the fields meditating on that Monday morning, early Monday morning, actually all night long, he thought, I'll just leave. <laughs> I'll just leave. Somebody else can do the preaching. Unbeknownst to him, one of the um, noble women who had come to the gathering was in her rented chambers. She had drawn the curtains around her bed, and for three hours she prayed for God's blessing on Livingston as he prayed. Unbeknownst to her, her door was open, and many people crowded in her room and joined her as she prayed. Livingston was given assurance that when he preached, the Lord would bless his preaching. And so he came back and preached. And on that day, 500 people were converted. And it began a revival that filled the area of Clydesdale. And many others came to know the Lord because God had chosen to use his servant on that day. But what I would point out is, it was in answer to the prayers of God's people that the Lord would use his word in this remarkable way. So what happened long ago at the Kirkashots, which was the place, can that happen today? Why does it not happen today? I would suggest one reason is because we are not asking for it. So we are to pray our Father. But then also notice in the text that when we pray, the Lord Jesus would encourage our confidence in prayer by telling us that we are to pray, Our Father who art in heaven. Now, we've seen that God is Father. Why does the Lord emphasize that we are to pray, Our Father in heaven? That is, Jesus wants this reality to have an impact on your prayer life. Why do you pray, Our Father in heaven? Well, I will tell you why. He stresses that we are to pray to our Father in heaven because this reminds you that God is sovereign. Psalm 115 that we read today, but our God is in the heavens, he hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. Psalm 103:19, the Lord has prepared his throne in the heavens and his kingdom ruleth over all. God our Father is omnipotent. How majestic your heavenly Father is. Our Father is in heaven, and that means that he has power to accomplish his sovereign purpose. Daniel 4.35, he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what doest thou? So Jesus encourages your confidence in prayer because you not only pray to your Father, but you pray to your Father in heaven, which underscores that he is absolutely sovereign over all men and all things and all circumstances about which you pray. But also you pray our Father in heaven because it enables you to personalize your prayers in faith. The triune God, the God of the blessed attributes, the sovereign God, I bow the knee, and for what can I not pray if he is my Father in heaven? This God, who had every right to crush me, 
Rather, save me through Jesus Christ. Through Christ's blood, I am now God's child, and he is my father. And so I come with reverence and awe, but I also come knowing that there is nothing for which I pray that he is not able to take care of. You pray also, our Father, in heaven, because it enables you to pray boldly. If he is my Father in heaven, and then I come in prayer to the God who is my omnipotent Father, and all of his omnipotence is for me and not against me, then I am encouraged to pray boldly. Think of it, people of God. All of his glorious attributes are for you. He rules on his throne, yea, with, a, with the good of his children in mind. And this means that he will give to you everything you need. This is the Father that has provided Jesus as our great high priest, who now shares his throne in ascension glory. And he says to you, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so you are weak. Sometimes you are reluctant to come. Sometimes you come haltingly and with with faltering and you do not come boldly. You should come boldly because your boldness does not rest in you, but in God's character, his fatherly love and in the merit of his own son and ascension power. You pray, our Father, in heaven, because this enables me to trust him no matter what. How? Because God is your Father, we come to him in prayer and the knowledge that no real evil can befall me. I did not say no trouble will befall you. He promises trouble will befall you. But he also promises no real evil will befall you. Psalm 91.10, there shall no evil befall thee finds its New Testament equivalent in Romans 8.28, in which God promises that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. And so you are on your knees and you say, Lord, I know there's trouble, but I plead your promise. No real evil will befall me. And like Thomas Watson, the Puritan, a patient Christian like the anvil bears all strokes invincibly. In other words, when you pray to your Father who is in heaven, you are praying in such a way that you are acknowledging that what God has revealed to us at the end of Romans 8 is absolutely true in your life. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That is what you mean when you pray, Our Father who art in heaven. Now let me bring to you some specific 
implications of this. I'm going to bring seven. Are these things true? Do you pray our Father in heaven? Then people of God, will you begin to pray in faith? Address God as your Father in heaven. If you If your trust is in Christ alone for your redemption, then you are clothed with the perfect righteousness of Christ, and through God's own predestinating purpose, you have been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ and are sons of the living God. Why should we not pray in faith? Second, do you pray our Father in heaven? Then pray harboring no doubt that you are received, being confident that his tender compassion is upon you in Christ that his almighty power is boundless for you, harbor no doubt that he is willing to receive you. Do you pray our Father in heaven? Then pray more and talk to others less. Pray more and talk to others less. Let me tell you something that concerns me in the evangelical church today. I sometimes wonder if the degree to which we turn to men rather than God is because of unbelief. Indeed, there's much talk with one another. It happens sometimes in our small group settings. It can happen in gatherings. There is much that we talk to one another about that really is immodest. I remember Sinclair Ferguson saying to me in personal conversation one day, you know, people talk about things with others now that our forefathers would have only taken to the throne of grace. And of course, we live in a very immodest age. We put everything on Facebook and everything is out there for everybody to know. Now, I'm not saying do not bear one another's burdens. Don't take my comment to some unwarranted extreme. But I am saying this. If you pray, our Father in heaven, with all that that means, why not take your deep personal needs more to the Lord and less to other people? Fourthly, pray for others. Do so for yourself, for your needs, but don't miss the our Father of this prayer. We pray with and for others. We are together sons and daughters of our great Heavenly Father. And so we pray for one another. Our Father means we pray for one another. He's not only my Father, though He is, He is our Father. Someone asked me this past week how I pray, and one of the things I told them in answer to that is that I take the directory, our church directory, and I pray through the church directory. And so I pray for all of you. And when I have concluded praying through, I'm not saying I pray through the whole directory every day, by the way. I pray through portions of the directory several times a week. And so when I have gone through the directory completely, I just go back to the directory and then I start again. But then there are more babies born, so I need a new directory, you see. But we pray our Father because we love one another. And so we pray for others. And then fifthly, pray relying on God's promises. Pray in faith upon God your Father's promises. Turn them into prayer, as did Luther, who prayed like a child, believing that all of God's promises could not fail to be accomplished. Learn to take the promise and say, Lord, you say this. This is not me. This is your word. I'm lifting this promise up to you in prayer. This, Lord, is your promise to me. And then sixthly, pray in the knowledge that your Savior shares God's throne as your intercessor. And so I'll draw a line from our Father who art in heaven in Matthew and in Luke 
all the way to the book of Hebrews. Turn there for a moment to Hebrews chapter 4 and just remind yourselves of what we are told there about the boldness that we should have in prayer. The knowledge that God's throne is shared by your great intercessor. Hebrews chapter 4, 14 through 16. Hebrews 4.14, seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Christ's blood is the plea that is heard at the throne of grace when you pray. When you pray faithfully and from the heart, and yet you pray amiss, do you know what happens? As with all of your prayers, all of your prayers ascend to the Father through Jesus Christ, your heavenly high priest, He wraps them in the completion of his own blood, merit, and righteousness so that every prayer you pray is presented faultlessly to the Father, faultlessly is heard, and therefore will be faultlessly answered. You will never be disinherited because, as Trail says, nothing can dethrone grace. And so go to your great intercessor. But then finally... And maybe, most importantly, maybe, for some of you it will be, I'm asking you, people of God, to pray in the realization that God, your Father who is in heaven, wants you to come and pray and spend time with him more than you want to come. Pray in faith that your God, who is your Father in heaven, wants you to come and spend time with him. He wants you to come more than you want to come. Therefore, want to come more because you know your God wants you to come. Do you really believe that? Think about it for a moment. The God who created, the God who is infinite in his nature, the God who is holy in all of his ways wants you, his people, in his presence because you are the purchased possession of his own dear son. He wants you in his presence. My, if I really understood that, I might pray like Johnston from six to eight. I certainly would pray with more depth and feeling and fervency and desire and longing because, you see, prayer is, first of all, just fellowship with God. A minister of a bygone day, I read something of his a while back. There was a man whose lovely wife died. Oh, how he loved his wife. And how he missed her. 
But thankfully, the Lord had given to him a daughter that was still with him. And when he would come home from work at night, what fellowship he and his daughter had. Uh, They would cook a meal together. They would read, they would play, they would sing. And this happened every night. And it helped to fill his heart after his wife had died. And he loved fellowshipping with his daughter. And his daughter loved fellowshipping with her father. And then one night she said, excuse me tonight, father. I have something to do in my room. And of course, he excused the young lady. And then the next and the next and the next night, excuse me, father, I have something to do in my room. And the father, of course, was disappointed, but certainly let his daughter go. She needed to grow up. She needed to do her own things. And then Christmas morning came. Merry Christmas, father, she said. And she showed him that all of those times that she had gone to her room to be by herself, she had been crocheting slippers for her father. And so he thanked her, hugged her, loved her, expressed gratitude. But he couldn't help but add, I would much rather have had you with me all those lonely evenings. Now, I wonder if through this word today, the Lord is saying, in essence, to some Christian heart, you're doing many things, even for me, but I want you to spend time with me. I want you to listen to my word. I want you to talk with me in prayer. I want you to come to me as the Father I am, and I want you to live in my presence, my son my daughter. And so I call upon you in light of this, people of God, bestir yourselves, get on your knees, delight in communing with your God, shake off lethargy and become the Christians that you can be by being frequently, often, and much, very pointedly in the presence of our Father who is in heaven. And God's people said, Amen.